Hello and welcome to Subject Matter. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, and today we're speaking to a very interesting gentleman indeed, Rob Volpe. Rob is an astute observer and a master storyteller who puts empathy at the core of what he does. He's the CEO of Ignite360, which is a team of professionals delivering insights, strategy, and creative to some of the world's leading brands with empathy at the heart. As a thought leader in the role of empathy in marketing and the workplace, Rob frequently speaks at conferences, corporations, workshops, and college classes on how we can use empathy better. He lives in San Francisco with his husband and three cats. He's a graduate of Syracuse University's Newhouse School of Public Communications. And his book, Tell Me More About That, coming out in February 2022, which will talk about practical solutions on how to solve today's empathy crisis, also appears in our interview. Today, you're going to learn the differences between cognitive empathy and emotional empathy. Not all empathy is created equal, and you have to be aware which of the two to use at work, because one is going to get you far, and I promise you one is not. You're going to learn why you need to think of empathy as a waypoint rather than a goal or a solution. And finally, we'll dig into practical ways that you can incorporate empathy more into your life by asking the right questions and building the right habits. This is a great interview packed with insights. If you're not already, go ahead and subscribe over on our YouTube channel or the podcast player that you use to not miss out on the highlight clips that we're going to be posting from this episode, along with bonus content. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Rob Volpe. Rob, welcome to Subject Matter. It is great to have you here. Thank you, Ben. It's awesome to be here with you today. So you are a man that is all about empathy. And I thought we could start with understanding some of the dynamics behind empathy with an interesting example you shared with me on how actors and creatives use empathy to deliver authentic performances. Could you explain that to our audience, please? When you're an actor, I mean, and even any sort of creative, you are ultimately trying to bring to life the emotions, the feelings, the experiences of other people so that your audience can then pick up on it. They're either drawing on their own lived experiences, which may be similar to their character, or they're drawing on some other experience that elicits the same emotion that they expect would be coming from what their character is going through in that moment. So they're able to use empathy as a conduit to create between different emotions and experiences to bring a more fully realized performance to their selves. So it sounds like empathy is a gateway then to viscerally feel emotions that might otherwise be outside of our worldview, but instead to lead with curiosity and say, I wonder what it would feel if that person felt that, and then creating the space for us to step into that emotional reality. Absolutely. If you think about an author and writing, when you're reading a book, I mean, reading fiction or nonfiction is a great way to develop your own empathy skills and to imagine what it's like to be somebody else because in the book, the author is telling you what it is. Mm. And they're helping you have those experiences and, and, and feelings. But you do need to be curious. I mean, if you're not curious, then this is all a non-starter. I think one of the things people 
misunderstand about empathy or, or have trouble taking empathy and connecting it to something else, we're, we're always looking for the end result. Our society is like, get me to results right away, right away. Empathy is a waypoint. It's the middle point to get you to where you need to go. So if you're trying to improve innovation at work, if you're trying to create a piece of art, if you're trying to collaborate with somebody or just engage, you have to have empathy on that journey. But it it's the, the middle ground to enable you to put yourself into somebody else's shoes, to be able to draw on what those emotions might be so that you can move forward into the next step and get to that end point that you're ultimately looking for. It's interesting what you're saying about this idea of empathy as a waypoint. I'm struck by the difference between masculine energy and feminine energy, where we typically associate males with being very goal-oriented. In hunter-gatherer societies, they were hunting down, they had the trophy, they had the prize, there was always a solution. Women in the tribe are much more nurturing. They're the ones who are raising the offspring, and so by nature have a larger capacity to feel for their offspring, especially early on. They say that a mother's love is the purest form of love that there is. Empathy seems much more geared towards that latter energy of saying we don't always have to be achieving the goal or moving to the solution or hustling in this area. Actually, we can take stock, really connect to ourselves. And because of that, maybe even find a path that we didn't know existed previously. Yeah, it's a great observation. And it's a gross stereotype. I mean, humans are capable of emotion, whether you're male or female. And quite honestly, when you get into masculine and feminine energy, and that's a whole separate conversation, but both sides exist in every human being. It's about which one you're tapping into at, at what particular time. But when it gets into the sort of structure and dogma of society, yes, women were are, were stereotypically more nurturing and emotional and empathetic, and men were more in the hunter-gatherer. And, and, you know, you see that play out in the workforce even. And, you know, if you think of the stereotypes from the 50s and the 60s and, you know, the sort of madmen society, it's, it's still a very male-dominated field. They're hunting and gathering. Women's place was back in the kitchen, you know, raising kids and whatever. And that still continues to this day. I mean, those sorts of, of big changes don't happen overnight. And if you look at the C-suite and the leadership in so many organizations, it is largely male still. And there's work to change that, but it is largely in, in the United States, it's largely white and, and male. And so what role can empathy play if you can get those men to recognize, hey, wait a minute, I need to tap into that stereotypically feminine energy. I need to be more empathetic and understanding in order to make a better business ultimately. And that's what society is, is demanding with uh, everything that's happening in the workforce and the great resignation, uh, particularly of white collar workers. There's a huge, huge drive for empathetic leadership, more empathetic organizations. And that requires men in particular, but even women, um, everyone to reassess, reconnect, and realign how they are showing up at work as well as in, in their personal lives, and to be more empathetic as a result. 
So a lot of our listeners are ambitious professionals up and coming in, in the workforce. And I can imagine that some of them might be thinking if they're a white male, well, I don't want to be that person in the future who's entrenched in their view and they're not empathetic. But the truth is that person who might be a few decades ahead, they were once young as well. Their minds were malleable. They were more open-minded. They were probably more curious as well. And so this is an evolution which happens over time with one's career. So let's look at the two pools that we have here for men and for women, because I do, as you pointed out, there are, or inferred rather, there are some differences between how women see themselves in the workforce and how men see themselves as well. So let's discuss both. And given the the stigma or the problem exists around in the United States, the idea of the white man encompassing that leadership role, what can other young men do who are ambitious? Maybe they're leading their first small team or they're just starting to get some responsibility in their, in their company. What can they do to remain empathetic in the roles that they're doing and to make sure that their thinking isn't hardening into this very inflexible way of thought, but that they're able to remain open and connect with their peers? There's some very encouraging data coming out in some studies. I was looking at one study that Business Solver did, and 90% of Gen Z is indicating that they're more likely to stay with an employer if their employer is empathetic. We gave millennials a lot of credit for making some changes. I think we're now starting to see the influence of Gen Z, and it is different than what millennials were doing. So as you're showing up and you're getting those opportunities there's nothing wrong with having empathy. I often talk about how, you know, empathy is an E word that people are afraid of, like emotion, as I mentioned earlier. And because of all the baggage that goes along with it, and because people don't understand that it is this waypoint, it's a journey that, you know, it's helping you get someplace better. So if you can start to embrace that and understand that, then you can start to move into, okay, I need to be more empathetic in order to be more successful. But being empathetic, there's two different types of empathy, if I can kind of go down this rabbit hole. Sure, yeah. There's cognitive empathy, which is more mental, rational, seeing the point of view of somebody else. I can see where you're coming from, Ben. And then there's emotional, or it's also called affective empathy. That's the uh, much more heart, Ben, I really feel what you're feeling, I've been there. I get that. Those are two very different things. And it's really about cognitive empathy that's important and relevant in the workplace. If you're too far down into the emotional, first of all, I don't think everybody is able to as easily access it for all the things we were talking about earlier about hunters and gatherers and the way we're wired and stigma from society. And that's okay. And there are people that are really excellent at tapping into the emotional empathy. Awesome. In the workplace, though, it's really about seeing the point of view of other people, whether that's a colleague, a direct report, a leader, a business partner that's outside of your organization, your customer, your client, your consumer. You need to be able to see their point of view, understand where they're coming from in order to engage with them in a much more productive way. So my guidance to the younger generation that's coming into the workforce is develop those skills, think about how you want to show up, first of all, and then start to practice those skills and put them into place. 
I can guarantee if you're using cognitive empathy in the workplace, you are going to have more success and you are going to be more successful. And success isn't always about a number of like, oh, look at my revenue goal. Although it does mm-hmm. help you with sales, but it also helps you get along with people. So maybe your 360 review is going to be more positive because you're taking the time to uh, develop those relationships. When you're in a managerial position and you've got direct reports or you're project leading a team, Mm. you're going to get a lot more collaboration. You're going to get a lot more support. They're going to appreciate you, which means you're going to, and because of the relationship that you foster, you're actually going to experience less turnover. So all of those things are going to be working together to make you a powerhouse and a dynamo in your organization. But it's the 21st century powerhouse dynamo that's leading with empathy rather than Gordon Echo, greed is good, and the horrible bosses that we've seen in the past. If we think about this idea of cognitive empathy then, Rob, that people can develop in the workplace, what are some of the practices or questions or habits that our listeners can use to start developing this muscle? And maybe this could be in the interactions that they have with their manager. Maybe this could be in the interactions they have with the people that they're managing. Or this could be when they're not interacting with someone at all, when they're just thinking things through or or reading, uh, reading an email, however you'd like to take that. But what are the practical habits that we can use to start building cognitive empathy? There's been such a cry that's been getting louder and louder every year about we need to be more empathetic. But nobody was talking about how to actually do it in the moment. And it's those things that are going on in your head when you're having an interaction with somebody rather than the, yes, you need to put yourself in their shoes. You need to go eat where they eat and read the books that they're reading. Those are the actions, but I wanted to really understand the sort of barriers that come up for us personally. And so as a result of that, develop the five steps to empathy, which are the things you need to go through in order to clear the way to get there. It's dismantle judgment, ask good questions, actively listen, integrate into understanding, and then finally using solution imagination. So the first thing you got to do is dismantle your judgment. So if you're, you get an email from somebody, if you've got bias, a stereotype, whatever your past experiences have been with them, if you let that get in your way, then you're never going to get to a successful positive outcome that's good for both parties. So you've got to put yourself into their shoes. You've got to be thinking about like, where are they coming from? What are, if you're negotiating with somebody, what are they looking for? What's the outcome that they're hoping to achieve? What am I trying to achieve? And how do we find a middle ground that will work for both people? Right now, what, what's getting modeled for us in society, in politics, is this zero-sum game. It's left versus right. It's my way, not your way. And that's not empathetic at all and not really conducive to creating good business relationships and success. So it's always thinking about the other person and where they're coming from and what's going on with them. And then how do you adapt? You use that same tactic in all those other situations. That's kind of like the basics. You're dismantling your your judgment. You're asking good questions if you're talking with somebody then. Like, okay, talk to me about what's going on. And it's not yes, no questions. It's very open, broad questions. How are you? How are you doing? How are you feeling about whatever the, the world event is or, or corporate event might actually be? 
And one thing there, Rob, just I'd love for you to underscore, why is it important to ask these open-ended questions as opposed to closed yes or no, A or B questions? Because if you had asked me a close-ended question and I had just said yes, where's that going to go? <laughs> what understanding right. Conversation are you- done. Stops. Yeah. Okay. Um, you need closed questions if you're trying to affirm, okay, so you do want me to go do this, you know, and spend a million dollars on this thing. Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> Close-ended questions have their purpose, but when you're trying to get to empathy and to explore and understand, you need to have open and exploratory questions. And it's also important not to lead in your question, you know, if you, you watch any courtroom dramas over in the United States, one of the objections that people will always yell out, you know, it's like objection leading the witness. Mm. It's because the lawyer is basically telling or hinting to the witness what they want them to say. They're leading mm. them in a certain direction. And that easily comes up in our daily conversation. But then you're not going to really give me your honest sort of opinion about that. I see a couple of interesting things happening here. Number one is that by taking the time to ask an open question, we're not assuming that we have all the answers. I have been reading Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, a book on negotiating. And in the book, he talks about how great negotiators go in expecting to uncover the information that they would be surprised to find. They are expecting the unexpected. And it's the same with, it seems to me, with these open questions where we're not assuming that we know how the other person thinks. We're actually, as you say at the start, dismantling our judgment and just going in as with as much of a blank canvas as we can. The other thing which seems ever-present in the approach to empathy, whether you are a junior intern or a senior executive, anywhere on the spectrum, is humility. Is Mm -hmm. being able to say, actually, do you know what? I don't have the answers. I don't know how Rob is thinking. I'm going to go and ask him about the office. And again, being prepared for that surprise. But what's interesting to me is that that doesn't change. So regardless of what stage you're at in your career, these principles of curiosity, humility, removing judgment, and as a result, asking these very open questions seems like tools that we can carry through throughout our career, regardless of where we are on the professional ladder. 100%. And I'm glad you brought back in the word curiosity, because that's what it's ultimately all about. If you think you know the answer, you're not curious. You're not going to be curious about something. So it is about beginner's mindset or an open mind being open to the answer, whatever's coming up uh, for people. And one of the challenges, and I think where some people are, are running into issues now, leaders are expected to know the answer. They're expected to make the decisions and often depending on how far up you're going, the pressure just keeps increasing as you're, you're advancing through your career and you've got to move even faster. And they'll, you know, so there's, Oh, there's no time for these niceties. Just tell me what I need to know. And I'll tell you the answer. And it's interesting because 
I don't necessarily want my team to come to me looking for me to have the answer. I want them to come to me with a recommendation and then we can kind of talk about that. But I need to be open to where they're going to take it. Cause, and, and I think that where the humility comes in is, hmm, I might not have all the answers or the one right answer because there probably isn't one right answer. There's multiple ways forward. So can I be open enough to hear what they're thinking? Can I be open and curious to understand how they got there and where, and then play that out with them on where that might go? That's a much more enriching experience and your team is going to felt heard and engaged with you in a way that they wouldn't normally have if you had just kept it like, oh, I'm the boss and I've got the answer. Here it is. I think that's a great principle for people who are managing teams to carry forward from this is to remember that you don't have all the answers and the perspective that your team will have on your business is probably more specialized than you because you're going to be managing people by virtue and they're going to be performing a function and they're going to know that function so much better than you. So being able to approach that with curiosity, I think is a, is a really strong thing. Now let's switch tax here for a second, Rob, because I was very struck when we initially spoke on how you actually came to realize that empathy was important and, and would play an integral part of your life quite some years ago. Could you tell the, the story for our audience of how you came to realize the power of empathy and the impact that it had on your early life? So I grew up, uh, I grew up in Indiana. My family was not from Indiana, but we moved into Indiana and we moved into a smaller, small town, as I refer to it, in Indiana. Indiana is a very conservative state, still is. Back in 1980, it was even more conservative. And the small town had about 13,000 people in it. So there was a lot of, I'm related to this person, that person, whatever. There wasn't a lot of outsider coming in. There was no diversity in terms of race or ethnicity. The fact that I had an Italian last name, Volpe, was very diverse and unusual. And so in fifth grade, which is when I moved into this new town and this new school, it was maybe two months in that one of the kids decided that a one week he told me, oh, we're going to be in competition to be valedictorian someday. And I'm like, I'm in fifth grade. I'm the oldest child. I have no idea what a valedictorian <laughs> is. So like, go home, ask my mom, what's a valedictorian? <laughs> a week later, he comes in and he announces, oh, you're gay. And I'm also like, what? <laughs> I don't understand what that is. But rumor catches like wildfire. And my life went to hell, starting with that. And a lot of the kids started to pick up on it. It was a good put down to share with everyone. And it was, it was really difficult. And I didn't understand why. Why were they behaving that way? What did I do? You know, I, I didn't feel like it was justified, but I started to develop. That was the sort of moment that the empathy, my superpower switch, I guess, in my origin story. Going back then, that was the lightning bolt, the spider bite, the you know meteor showering down that turned on my superpower of empathy. And I started to use empathy as a survival skill 
to get along with the other kids so that I could navigate more successfully through, I mean, you know, the rest of elementary school through junior high and then ultimately into high school. So empathy became really important to me then and then just kind of continued as, as a foundational skill that was at the forefront for me. I, I was going to say that I just intuitively have, but everybody has the ability to be empathetic. It's just that our muscles, empathy muscles are atrophied uh, in many cases. And so I was working to bring that forward and, and it's just a strong muscle for me now. I am really struck by the realization or the lesson that the earlier we're able to start with this, the better it can be from us. I certainly could have used some empathy in the playground. I had to use my intelligence as a tool to keep up because I was the youngest in my year and I had to take a week out of school to go in intensive care and I couldn't play sports and ended up getting picked on. But I, I would use my intelligence as a tool to try and keep up and basically be like, oh, I'm smaller than you and runtier than you, but at least I'm smarter than you. By the way, folks, that is not a great way to build relationships in case you couldn't guess. And actually just being able to have the empathy to say to them, you know, maybe I might be struggling on the football field or the rugby pitch, but hey, if you're struggling in English or in history, I can help you out or I can help you in maths, whatever that is. Like there's always, uh, your peril is always someone else's advantage and vice versa. What you find very easy, some people might find hard. And it sounds like empathy was able to help you very intuitively navigate the differences between those two and help your peers realize that you are more alike than you are different. It helped them see me as like, oh, he's not such a bad guy or, you know, okay, he just listened to whatever is going on. To talk about that sort of atrophy of the muscle or just the, you know, so many adults are growing up without a strong empathy muscle and, and how we've kind of gotten to where we are. First of all, in some data that we've done and some work around empathy, we found that like nearly a third of American adults admit having difficulty having empathy with others, that they're not very e able to easily see somebody else's point of view. And then in that same study, 50% of American adults indicated that they do want to work on improving their empathy skills. And, you know, you take that, you couple it with data that came out in 2010 from the University of Michigan talking about the 40% decline in college students' ability to have empathy with their peers. That started, they noticed that decline happened in 2001 and continue through 2009 when they, they wrapped up their meta-analysis there is definitely an empathy crisis uh, that's going on. You know, it just continues to get louder and louder and people are hearing that. You know, kids are now so much more scheduled than they used to be. So you're not allowed to just go outside. You know, if you, if I used to say to my, my mom, mom, I'm bored, and we'll go outside and play. Or if it's raining out, go up to your room and play. And so what do you end up doing when you're, you're there and in those situations? You go in the backyard and ultimately you start role-playing something. Um, you're making something up in your head. And that is a form of empathy because you have to imagine what it would be like to be Iron Man or Wonder Woman or a, a police officer or a firefighter to step into their shoes and successfully role-play. And so role-playing is actually a great way for kids to develop their, their empathy skills. And now 
between kids just not having time, like bored is like a four letter word where kids aren't allowed to do it. It's not really recommended or, or frowned upon because of the pressure to succeed, get into college, et cetera, et cetera. Parents having busy schedules, needing some sort of, of childcare sort of option. So that's been on the decline. And there is movement to try to get creative play kind of back into to fashion. But additionally, then there's technology and the way that we engage with technology. And so much of it is a one-way relationship. Like if you think about playing a game with a friend or friends versus playing a multiplayer game on a video game, you're really just interacting with the game. You may say a few things with your friend, but you're not immersing with them. You're not role-playing. You're not putting yourself into their shoes necessarily. Sure, yeah. So it's a one-way relationship with technology. And then you get into social media. And that's all about, regardless of the platform, it is all about likes and being validated. And that validation is not empathetic in nature. It's, I'm looking for my self-worth and for my ego to be stroked. And you tell me that I have value. Mm. People aren't necessarily reaching out from an empathetic perspective and, and even a sympathetic one sometimes. So it's a really good point that the systems or the the technology that we spend so much time using, it doesn't help us build bonds in the way that we think it does. It's really just there to get dopamine. What I do think is very interesting, though, is this idea of children being able to learn empathy through playing, whether they're role-playing nurses or firemen or doctors or whoever that is but they're able to step into people's shoes. And we lose some of that magic as adults. But I've been taking, I'm now into my fifth week of uh, improv comedy classes. And honestly, Rob, it is just a way to unleash my inner five-year-old for two hours every Monday. I mean, I love it. And part of what they get you to do is step into characters. And they say, well, think about people you've seen today or think about people from your past and use them as inspiration. Because those are what allow us to deliver the most authentic performances. Coming back to what you spoke about as the, uh, with the yeah. actors and performers right at the start of this conversation. It does seem to me like we, we don't have to lose this childlike sense of wanting to play as other people. Empathy can be playful. Empathy should be fun because you get to understand all these other people in the way that they see the world, their perspectives in much more vivid detail. So this really isn't like a, a work task. It's more like a delicious meal to be savored, if anything. It's a way of being. It's about how you show up in the world and move through the world. And you can choose uh, to be empathetic or you can choose not to. And yes, empathy does play a role in improv classes and just playing as, you know, whether, I don't know whether you're role-playing with your spouse in certain situations or you're into cosplay or all these different things. Those are empathy. Those are empathy-related activities. And we need more of that in our life, you know? And, and if there's one thing I could encourage people to do just to strengthen their empathy muscle a little bit, mm. I mean, yeah, sure, go, go outside in your backyard and role-play. That could be fun. <laughs> but when you're in line at the grocery store, when you're, you're queued up at the, the cash register and you're, you're waiting for a few minutes, strike up a conversation with the person before or after you in line. Be curious. Ask them a question. 
about what they might be buying. What are, what are you going to do with that? I, I'm looking for, you know, whatever. Find something to talk to them about. Be curious about them and have a little interaction with them rather than looking at your phone and checking Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, whatever it is you're, you're going to look at. Because again, that's standing there for a dopamine hit versus ra- rather than having an engagement with somebody and a chance to learn more and be empathetic. That's part of the, the challenge that we've run into is we're, we're getting so siloed now that we're not taking the time to just ask, oh, hey, how are you? Or being curious, like, oh, I noticed you're buying that item. What what would you do with that? I've never bought that or had that before. What's it taste like? And some people get stuck and like, oh God, what do I do? How do I ask a question? My default, I learned this when I learned to moderate 14 years ago, is just to ask, tell me more about that. Tell me more about whatever that item is that you, you're about to buy or eat or do or whatever. Just tell me more. It's an open question. They can take it wherever they want. Ben, tell me more about your office. You know, open, it's easy. And if you just have that in your head and ready, ready to pull it out and use it, it'll be amazing. I think that's a, an excellent place to wrap today. This idea of empathy as a way of being, something that's foundational, being able to bring this curiosity and humility to everything that we do. But at the same time, there are very specific techniques that we can use to be more empathetic in our lives with tell me more about that, asking open questions, or simply just putting your phone down and actually having a conversation with a stranger. I think those are some really juicy practical tips for everyone to take away, Rob. If our audience wants to learn more about how you see empathy and dig more into your ideas, where are the best places for them to keep up with you and follow your journey? Two places on social media. Uh, One would be to find me on LinkedIn, uh, Rob Volpe, look up Empathy empathy Activist, and I will show up there. Uh, You can also follow Empathy Activist on Instagram. I'd love to engage with you there and share more of my journey and hear more about yours. I also have a book coming out in February, uh, February 22nd, 2022, called Tell Me More About That. This is uh, the proof that I'm going through at the moment, but tell me more about that. Solving the empathy crisis, one conversation at a time. I go into a lot of detail about the five steps, but I do it by sharing my own stories. And I start with that childhood experience and I get to, um, and the book ends with how I actually got to a place of forgiveness with my childhood schoolmates. So it's very heartfelt. It's my own personal journey, but I think people can get a lot out of that. The other thing I would mention, we also do empathy training uh, and have been for quite a long time, both with teams and individuals. It's Empathy Camp. Uh, You can visit uh, my company's website, which is ignite-360, the numbers.com, ignite-360.com and look for Empathy Camp. Fantastic. Rob, thank you so much. This is a real pleasure. Ben, I love the conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode and want more insights to help you get ahead personally and professionally, make sure to subscribe to stay up to date with our latest content. It makes a big difference in helping our content get discovered, and so I'd really appreciate it too. If you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, I'd love to hear them. You can drop us a comment on YouTube or message me directly on Twitter. My handle is at Ben Bradbury underscore. I'll see you next time.